2: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we get an update on the redistricting process in Colorado. Plus, we check in with how Coloradans are responding to the violence in Palestine.
1: Coloradans here, we definitely want to see a de-escalation, but there is an unbalanced form of power in the region.
2: We'll also hear about the expensive task of cleaning up oil and gas wells in our state, and we'll check in on the rising fuel prices across the country. to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. This is an important time for the future of politics in Colorado. For the first time, our voting districts for the state legislature and Congress will be drawn not by state lawmakers, but by independent commissions, That once-a-decade responsibility is magnified because we're getting an extra representative in the U.S. House from the 2020 census count. The Independent Redistricting Commission's work got to a rocky start because they don't have all the population data they need. KUNC's Adam Reyes is here to break down all of that for us. Adam, welcome back. Thanks for having me. The Redistricting Commission's need this local census data to draw these electoral districts, but they don't have that data. What is going on with that?
3: Long story short, unexpected difficulties in last year's census count forced the Census Bureau to delay releasing population data for counties, cities, zip codes, etc. to reduce errors. The commissions need those numbers to draw evenly populated districts. The rules and timeline for these commissions assumed that data would be available in March, as federal law dictates. But now the Census Bureau says it may not come out till August. So
2: how are the commissions being
3: affected by this delay? Commissioner Danny Moore summed it up in a congressional redistricting meeting. Regardless of what we do, we're we're going to be sued. If commissioners wait for census count data, they could be forced to miss deadlines, potentially resulting in lawsuits and throwing the 2022 election schedule out of whack. The other option, use population data estimates while awaiting the full count data. But doing that could also result in lawsuits which may invalidate the maps commissioners submit in September. For now, both the state legislative and federal congressional districting commissions have voted to take the latter path.
2: Well, lawsuits in both directions, that seems like a tough position to be in. So why did they choose to use the estimate data?
3: First and arguably foremost, a big constitutionally mandated part of the commission's job is to hit the road with some rough draft maps created by staff to get input from various communities throughout the state. They're supposed to do at least three meetings in each of the existing seven congressional districts. Two issues with that. That's time consuming. And the public can't comment on a map that doesn't exist. District maps can't be drawn without some kind of population data. So both commissions want to get moving on these public comment meetings, which they're already behind schedule on. Oh, and the use of that estimate data only applies to these preliminary maps. The final map will use census count data when that comes out.
2: State lawmakers have put out a bill that aims to help commissions use estimate data without being sued, right? Would that sort of fix all the problems here?
3: Short answer, it's complicated. Lawmakers are using Senate Bill 247 primarily to ask the state Supreme Court an important question because the commission's rules are set in the state constitution. Can the state's independent redistricting commissions use estimates to draw district maps? The idea is to answer that question before somebody else asks it through a potentially map killing lawsuit. And so how is the bill progressing? It's kind of a feat of bipartisanship, actually. Here's Democratic Majority Leader Steven Fenberg speaking in favor of the bill when it was first introduced.
2: It's the best, most
3: efficient, most
2: collaborative, least political way to answer this question so the independent commissions can get on with their work and do what the people of Colorado have asked them to do.
3: Republican Senate Minority Leader Chris Holbert urged his colleagues to vote for it, too. And they have. At every stage so far, the bill has passed almost unanimously, still awaiting a vote in the full House, but the state Supreme Court is already considering the arguments on that question. One tiny hiccup, though. The commissions themselves actually oppose the bill.
2: Wait, so... If this bill is supposed to help them use data they're already using, why are they against it?
3: Congressional redistricting commissioner Bill Leone is one of the most consistent opposers of legislative involvement. Here's the crux of the issue.
2: If the voters had wanted the
3: legislature to dictate how things were going to be redistricted, there would not be an independent commission. A little historical context here. The last time Colorado had to create new district lines, that responsibility fell to the state legislature, as it always had. Parties couldn't agree on how to draw the districts, lawsuits were filed, and ultimately the state Supreme Court had to step in and choose the map that we have today. The amendments that created these commissions, which voters backed, largely aimed to avoid these kinds of partisan issues. The commission's argument is, look, voters chose to create these commissions and enshrine them in Colorado's constitution. So the only people who get to make these decisions are the commissioners. You were pushed out of the redistricting process. Now stay out. And there is more to this opposition. There are some amendments to the bill that create extra rules for the commission that weren't in the original amendment voters passed. The commission's argue some of those requirements would only make existing timing issues worse.
2: What happens now
3: with all this? While the court considers the question posed by the bill, commission staff have already started using estimate data from the state demographer's office and Census Bureau to draw preliminary maps, while commissioners prepare to take on other duties, like setting up those public comment meetings we talked about. Lawsuits are a time-honored tradition of redistricting, and while the commissions were supposed to relieve some of that tension...
4: The new amendments and some of the actions of the General Assembly may have still created some questions that the court at some point would need to resolve. But not the sort of the breadth and extent of the ones that um, we're facing because of the delay.
3: That was Commission staff managing attorney Jeremiah Barry. KUNC's Adam
2: Reyes has been following the redistricting
3: process for us. Adam, thank you for breaking this down. My pleasure. <laughs>
2: Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed to press ahead with a military offensive in the Gaza Strip. He was pushing back against calls on Wednesday from the United States to wind down the operation that has left hundreds dead. Netanyahu's comments marked the first public rift between the two allies since the fighting began. This latest wave of unrest was spurred when Israeli police barricaded Al-Asqa Mosque in Jerusalem, the third holiest site in Islam, where Palestinians were gathering during the holy month of Ramadan. Hamas retaliated with rocket launches, but they've been unmatched by the power and force of the Israeli army. Recent airstrikes from Israel destroyed many significant buildings in Gaza, including the only COVID testing site. Colorado Edition's Alana Schreiber spoke with Dr. Rima Wadon, director of the Colorado Palestine Club, to learn how Coloradans are dealing with the conflict from
0: thousands of miles away. How is the Colorado Palestinian community being impacted by all
1: of this? The news that com- is coming in from our relatives overseas, even my cousin who, who was there during the incursion at Aqsa Mosque, you really are fearful for their lives. To be in that state of like, are they living, are they dying, are they living, are they dying, is really um, a huge toll on our mental, physical well-being and mental health. I mean, I don't think a lot of people have understood that from the Palestinian community, but it's really takes a toll. And I think the most thing that I was the Colorado community, I can say is that the statements and uh, images that come back from our friends and family and relatives, the, the desperation in their voice for help, and you feeling helpless on this end of the world, where we have been blessed to have luxuries and house over our head and food and clean running water. And on the other side of the world, they have no access to clean running water. They have no health care. They have no access to the COVID vaccine. They are in a state of despair. There is a lot of news coverage of this conflict. But is there anything that you think has gone underreported? I would say definitely. Since the intrusion on Al-Aqsa Mosque, Facebook has actively banned Palestinian statements coming out from Palestine, especially Gaza. Instagram went on a blackout from that area where we weren't able to hear from our relatives for about 24-hour period. And you also saw Israeli military bomb, the AP headquarters in Gaza, kind of blocking off Al Jazeera reporting, AP uh, mediate sources. And so the news is not coming out. Um, but there is Twitter, there is other access and means. And I'm really thankful for the social uh, media platform, because we are able to hear the voices of the Palestinian people that are under occupation and the struggling, and we are able to hear their voices. And I would say there was one lady, her name is Mahabharoudi, um, and she she basically said, said a statement that she's going to sleep, have all her kids sleep in her room. She has six kids. And the rationale behind it is that she didn't want anybody to mourn the loss of the other if They were to be killed the next day. He's like, just have that sink in. A mother is putting all her kids in one room. So if they die, they die together. And that is unfathomable in in the 20th century. But when it comes to Palestine, you know, we always find that there's a, a narrative being spun against the Palestinian people. And they always like neglect these voices. There's misconceptions internationally that the Palestinians don't want peace and they don't want to come to the table. You know, every time since, you know, 1948, the Palestinians keep showing up, but we can't keep coming to the table if we keep losing.
0: How have the recent events impacted the relationship between Colorado's Palestinian
1: and Jewish communities? It strengthened our relationships. When there's loss of life, there is no religion, neither Christian, Jew or Muslim, that support the killing of innocent people. As a Palestinian person who's worked and crossed those bounds with my fellow brothers and sisters from the Jewish faith, we see more people turning to the injustices and standing up and speaking up for Palestine. They know the injustices from the Israeli government is not in their name. We've had multiple organizations like Jews Voice for Peace stand up in solidarity with the Palestinian people. And to speak up against Israel is not anti-Semitic. We would be doing the same thing if there was like a, a different turn of events. Where do members of Colorado's congressional delegation stand? They have not spoken up in support. The statement that was posted by some of our Senators and congressmen is that they want to see de-escalation. Coloradans here, we definitely want to see a de-escalation, but there is an unbalanced form of power in the region. You're talking about the Israeli military, which is one of the most sophisticated, I probably would say the most sophisticated military in the world against a state that has no military. So you can't say this de-escalation when there is an imbalanced form of power in the region.
0: I understand that you held a protest at the state capitol last Friday. What do you hope to accomplish at events like these?
1: Our goal and uh, mission at these gatherings is very clear. Um, the, The first one is to demand justice for the Palestinians. And then second is to hold Israel accountable for their actions uh, against civilian population in Palestine. Then the third item is to contact your state representative. We're asking for people to hold uh, our Congress representatives now and demand that they support um, HR Resolution 2590, which is a bill to end US funding of Israeli oppression and stop the over $4 billion of aid each year that they give Israel. So we have on our Colorado Palestine club page on Facebook and on there, we basically put out these um, days of action. Um, We had a national day of action last Friday, over 1500 people, came to the capital and here you saw Honorable Senator Salazar there. We had Iman Jude, which is the first Palestinian member in the in, in house here. She also spoke and a number of activists from different communities, from the indigenous population, from the African-American community, from Latino communities, from Jews Voice for Peace, hundreds of people that never attended one of our rallies were there. And we only see this movement growing. What are your hopes for the future of the region? As a Palestinian, all I want is peace in the region. I, I don't want the governments from either faction to intervene in this movement. I think the people in, in Israel and the people in Palestine understand what needs to be done. And what needs to be done is to take these people out of office that are continuously brainwashing the masses and to think the enemy is on the other side. When at the end of the day, we are all human, we all support peace, we all want to be in tune with our religion in the one of the most religious areas in the world where Christians, Jews, and Muslims get to pray side by side. And that's that's what we want to revert back to: that unity, that Abrahamic faith principles, and to allow the two fractions to live side on side. And, and provide for their families, you know, send their kids to school, live in a safe home, uh, have safe neighborhoods. That's all they want, and that's all we want for them. And so we'll continue to speak up for the oppressed until we get that in the right direction.
0: Dr. Rima Wadon is the director of the Colorado Palestine Club. Thank you
1: so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me.
2: You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. The cost of fuel has been rising across the country and in Colorado. At the same time, major oil and gas companies have recently made major acquisitions and investments in the state. Here to talk with us about the rising prices and all of these changes in the local oil and gas industry is Dan Micah, reporter for BizWest. Dan, thanks for joining us. Hello, Henry. Obviously a lot going on in the oil and gas world. You're the expert here. What's going on with the rising gas prices? That's very kind of you to call me an expert. Um, The rise
5: of prices at the pump specifically, I think have been going up over the past couple of months, not only because there were some supply shortages caused by the Suez Canal blockage, but also simply because as more people get vaccinated and more people feel comfortable just going out into the world and traveling again, just there is kind of like this small disconnect right now between the amount of, of petroleum, the stuff that you put in your car, that is available right now and the demand that we're getting. So right now, fuel prices have hovered around $3. They're up to about three ten per gallon across Colorado on average, according to the Energy Information Administration. But I really think that the majority of these price hikes in the past couple of months have mainly just been because people feel comfortable going outside their house again.
0: There's also a
2: lot of big moves going on in the industry, and I'm wondering if we can get into some of this and how it is affecting consumers. First, I want to start with pipeline consolidation. The Chevron Corporation finalized its takeover of Noble Midstream LP. What is Chevron's larger goals here, entering Colorado's drilling scene, and what does all of this mean?
5: Yeah, so Chevron is one of the the really big super players in in, in the oil drilling and, and production world they acquired noble energy proper which was i believe the, the second or the third largest operator in weld county last year for about 5 billion dollars and that was kind of the that kind of made waves because it was the first major acquisition of a rather large oil company in noble being acquired by a super player so now chevron basically has sailed fully into to weld county and to some of its other properties that Noble Energy had around, you know, southern Wyoming and uh, perhaps a couple very small operations in other counties. But for the majority, Chevron has really settled into its drilling operations and settled into taking over these these wells and now has a, a much larger
2: position in Colorado. Well, other big news in Weld County, two of its largest oil and gas producers, Bonanza Creek Energy Inc. and Extraction Oil and Gas Inc., announced last week that they were going to combine to form a single drilling company, which has been valued at $2.3 billion. Frame that consolidation for us. What does that mean for the future of drilling in Weld County? Bonanza Creek and Extraction both recently
5: exited bankruptcy, so they both were hit fairly hard as the entire drilling industry was early on the pandemic simply because there was worries about you know credit being frozen up for a lot of companies but also there was just the expectation that if people were told to stay home then they're not going to be driving they're not going to be flying the demand for fuel is going to be a lot lower between that and fairly large debt loads that you have to take out to finance drilling they emerged from bankruptcy and decided to merge together to create what would I believe would be the third or the fourth largest oil and gas producer in Weld County. And that is expected to close sometime later in the year, I believe, in the third or fourth quarter of the year. But what this probably does mean is that as there are you know more of these consolidations between really, really, really big oil producers acquiring more smaller drillers in Weld County versus two- two companies that are are big in Weld County but wouldn't be considered extraordinary players within the the global or the national scene. I think with this consolidation we are going to see a much deeper expectation from shareholders for these companies to run lean and to avoid spending unbelievable amounts of money that they used to during the boom and buzz phase. And what that means is that probably there will be layoffs. I know that back when the Noble Energy merger was finally completed, Chevron cut the capital expenditures across the entire Noble Energy portfolio, which not only is Colorado, but parts of Texas by 25 percent and also laid off about 25 percent of the, the office staff uh, of Noble. So I expect, you know, although these are big deals being combined on the ground, it's Probably
2: going to be tougher to find rig work if you're a rig worker in Weld County. Dan Micah is a reporter for BizWest. You can find a link to their reporting on all of this at our website. Dan, thanks for talking with us. Anytime, Henry. Energy production has been a significant part of Colorado's economy for decades. In 2019, the state ranked 6th in the nation for oil production and 7th for the production of natural gas. But the task of cleaning up a well that reaches the end of its lifespan is an expensive prospect, and states can be left on the hook for those costs if companies aren't able to do it themselves. Colorado Edition's Erin O'Toole spoke with Nick Bolin, who recently reported about this for High Country News.
4: Can we start with just a brief description of the process to clean up a well that is done producing?
0: So when an oil or gas well reaches the end of its, its useful life. The borehole where the oil or gas is extracted from has to be plugged, usually with a, a cement plug is sunk down there. Any lines connecting the well to holding tanks or, or pipelines have to be taken out. Whatever infrastructure is on the site has to be cleaned up and taken away. And then the, the site itself is supposed to be reclaimed. You know, replanting vegetation or just kind of mitigating the impacts of the industrial activity.
4: Can we get a sense of the scope then of the problem in the state? According to your reporting, there are almost 60,000 of these unplugged wells in Colorado. What kind of price tag are we talking about?
0: There are about 60,000 unplugged wells. And to be clear, this includes all different kinds. So inactive wells, active wells that are currently producing oil or gas, whether it's next year or decades down the line, if, if they remain economic, these wells will need to be plugged. And the average cost of plugging a well varies considerably. The state's estimate for plugging a well is about $82,000. In a recent hearing that the state oil and gas commission, the staff mentioned that for really tough wells, the price can reach or exceed $200,000 per well. So it varies considerably, but the overall cost is going to be somewhere between $4 billion and $8 billion.
4: The way it works is oil and gas companies are supposed to pay for this, right? They're legally required to be able to cover the cost.
0: They are. So companies that drill wells are legally mandated to pay for plugging them. If they can't pay for the plugging to take place, they're legally required to put forward bonds, bonds that they buy from a third party basically insurance company. So think of like renter's insurance that you put forward on a house. So if a company is unable to pay for the plugging, the state can call on these bonds to then do that cleanup work.
4: Is there a sense of how much Colorado has on hand in these bonds?
0: The available bonds that the state can call on are a minuscule percentage of the overall cleanup cost. So right now, they're, they're about $185 million in available bonds. That's somewhere between 2 and 4% of the overall cost. And so this is a built-up potential liability for the state.
4: You have written there about 200 wells right now that are classified as orphan wells. Can you describe what that means? An
0: orphan well is a very specific category. So it's a well that is no longer in use and that has no responsible party around to pay for cleanup. And so that is on the Colorado Oil and Gas Regulator to clean up and and the Orphan Well Fund, it's largely funded by a tax placed on, on drillers. So there's money coming out of industry to pay for the Orphan Well Fund.
4: In 2019, Colorado undertook a major overhaul of oil and gas regulations. I'm wondering how this might impact this issue. And is there going to be an effort to address this massive cleanup bill?
0: Senate Bill 181, as it's known, really did overhaul the state's relationship to oil and gas, rewrote how the the state oil and gas commission relates to the industry. And this spring, yeah, they are taking on this issue of financial assurance of the bonding system. This has been a long time coming. The commission has been aware of the gap between the available financial assurance and the cleanup costs for a long time. And they're, the co- commission is right now in the early stages of the rulemaking process. So they're talking to industry, they're talking to local governments, they're talking to stakeholders of all kinds, and they're holding hearings and they are debating various policy tools That they could put in place to increase the financial assurances from industry when it comes to to plugging these wells.
4: What happens if disaster hits the industry and a lot of companies do go bankrupt? I mean, would taxpayers be on the hook?
0: Yeah, I mean, in theory, they would. The oil and gas industry will say that that's not going to happen, that despite some rocky financial signs that The kind of mass collapse in the industry, like we've seen in the coal industry, isn't coming for oil and gas. And that's probably true. Coal has hit this kind of like downward spiral where a lot of mines were abandoned to states, especially in the east, in Appalachia. And I don't think oil and gas is at that point right now. But yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of the point of scrutinizing the bonding system. You know, we know what the costs are. We know how much it is to plug a well, and we know how many wells there are. And then you look at kind of the financial backstop, the insurance, to make sure that those costs don't fall on the taxpayers. And depending on which number you use, the bonding is less than 5% of the total cost.
4: Nick Bolin is a reporter with High Country News. There's much more we didn't get into, so you'll find a link to this story at our website, KUNC.org. Nick, thank you so much for talking with us.
2: Thank you, Erin. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado Edition, we'll hear how Coloradans from around the state are thinking about this latest phase in the fight against COVID-19. I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. And our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. With that, thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.